Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We ask you to bless this time as we look at your word, guide and lead us. Let your Holy Spirit show us what you would want us to see in this chapter. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, Zechariah chapter 10, starting at verse 1. <laughs> ask you the, of the Lord, rain in the time of the latter rain, and the Lord shall make bright clouds and give, you, give them showers of rain, and every one grass in the field. For the idols have spoken vanity, and the diviners have seen a, seen a lie, and have told false dreams. They comfort in vain, therefore they went their way as a flock, and they troubled, and they were troubled because there was no shepherd. Mine anger was kindled against the shepherds. I will punish the goats for the Lord of hosts who has visited his flock in the house of Judah, and hath made them as a, as a goodly horse in the battle. Out of him came forth the corner out of him the nail, out of him the battle bow, out of him every oppressor together. And they shall be as a mighty man which treads down their enemies in the mire of the street in the battle. And they shall fight because the Lord is with them. And the, and the riders on horses shall be confounded. I will strengthen the house of Judah. I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them again to place them, <coughs> to place them for I have mercy upon them and they shall be as though I had not cast them out for I am the Lord their God and will hear them and they of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man and their hearts shall rejoice as though wine yea their children shall see it and be glad and their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord I will hiss for them and gather them I for I have redeemed them and they shall increase as they have as they have increased and I will sow them among the people and they shall remember me in far countries, and they shall live with their children and turn again. I will bring them again also out of the land of Egypt and gather them out of Assyria, and I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon, and, and place shall not be found for them. And he shall pass through the sea with affliction and shall smite the waves of the sea and all the depths, deeps of the river shall dry up and the pride of Assyria shall be brought down, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart away. And I will strengthen them in the Lord, and they will walk up and down in his name, says the Lord. All right. Here we're seeing God talk to his people, and bits and pieces of this have been occurred, have already occurred, and bits and pieces have not occurred. So this is kind of a, it is prophetic when Zechariah is giving it. So we're going to start out, in verse 1, ask you of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain, and the Lord shall make bright clouds and give them showers of rain and everyone grass in the field. If you're not aware of this, the latter rain is the rain that would fall in the late spring just before harvest time and bring the crops to their uh, final maturity. Um, I'm not sure if it's everywhere, but I do know what it means in, in that area. <laughs> huh? Places that actually get rain. But even, but even in this area, it doesn't always get rain. This latter rain was one that would fall and give it its burst of maturity. And then it would not rain again for a while so that they could then harvest it. And I don't know enough about it, but my dad used to tell me about harvesting the, the, the wheat and the, and the hay and everything. And if you bundled it up while it was wet, you could end up with... Uh, an internal combustion, you know, a spontaneous combustion as it started 
drying out with that wetness. And I don't understand it all, but this was the whole idea. They would have this last rain, the crops would grow, and then there wouldn't be rain, and they could harvest these, these items and be able to bundle them up. And this was what they waited for, and this is very common in the Middle East, this latter rain uh, that they were waiting for. And God says, ask for that latter rain. And then God says, I will give it to you. I will make bright clouds, and this bright cloud literally means storm clouds with thunder, thunder and lightning. All right, so kind of a poetic thing, but he's going to send them really good storm. <laughs> All right. Uh, and give them showers of rain and every one grass in the field. So he says, ask for me and I will provide. This is one of our problems so often is many times we don't ask God to provide <laughs> our needs. This is something that was expected. They, they, you know, God's telling them, ask for the latter rain. It's an expected event. And God's asking them to ask for it. And this is something that we need to be very, we don't want to be presumptuous in our asking of God, but God does want to hear us ask for what we need. You know, and he tells us, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. And he really is a good father. And, you know, he's one that when we ask him for gifts, if it's good for us, he'll give it to us. If it's not good, good for us, as a good father, he will tell us no. And I've always loved it when people say, well, God didn't answer my prayers. I go, yes, he did. You just didn't like the answer. No is a legitimate answer. Uh, but just as when we were kids or when we told our kids themselves no, they didn't like to hear it. When we were told no as a kid, and even if as an adult, when we're told no, we don't like to hear it. So oftentimes we will say, God didn't answer my prayers because we're not accepting no as a legitimate answer. In this case, God's saying, ask for what you need. And they needed this. They needed this latter rain to get a good harvest. And God said, ask and I will give it to you. And this is what God will do for us. When we need something and we go to him, he will give it to us. And that's his promise. He will meet all of our needs. Now, we said it many times here in America. We think, we think many wants are needs. And God oftentimes may say no to some of our wants. But he will promise, he's promised to give us our needs. The good thing is, as a good father, he wants to give us our wants if it will be something that we will use correctly. Now, if we consume our, our wants on us and don't honor God out in the process, and God's not going to give us our wants. And this is why many Christians do not have many things because they would not honor God with it and they would honor themselves with it and this is something we look at all through history there have been many Christians that have honored God in business and, and given God large percentages always some of them up to 90% of their income went to God and they were still millionaires because God knew that they would be trusted to keep giving God his portion and God is saying are you going to honor are you going to continue honor and the sad thing is and especially in american churches most people don't even give a 10 percent of their income you know they and you know and i understand when i was back in the days when i made very little money giving my 10 percent was a piece of cake 
you know, you got, you got a check for $500, giving God $50 was really not that big a deal. You couldn't pay a bill with $50. Now that my checks are much larger than, than, that, used, than that used to be, I look at some of my things and go, God, you know, this would pay a bill. Uh, now, I still honor him with my, with my tithes and offerings, but there are times when it gets interesting. When, when, when things get tight, you're going, wow, this... This, this check would make the car payment. This, this check would make the, the electric bill or the gas bill or some, you know, or pick, pick your bill. And it gets a little more of a temptation not to give. And this is why God is saying, give, honor him. And reach out and say, he wants to be asked for the things that we need. And just as any father, you know, we as parents probably didn't give our kids everything that they, they wanted without them asking just because. You know, we wanted them to know, we wanted to know that they were going to really want or desire or even be thankful for. And part of the problem many times with rich kids is, is, <laughs> is that they get everything they want in many cases. And without even, sometimes without even asking, they're just, they end up being spoiled, uh, and that's not a good thing for them. And God is not out to spoil us. <laughs> he'll make sure we have our needs. He'll put food on our table. He'll give us, he'll give us shelter. Uh, and if we honor him, he'll meet every need that we have and then many wants. Uh, and this is the good news that we have. And God's saying, ask. I know you need this ladder rain. Just ask me for it, and I will give it to you. And, you know, and he says, I'll even make a, make a spectacle out of it. I'll, I'll, give, you, I'll give you the light, lightning storm, you know, lightning and thunder and all that other stuff as, as well. Just, and, I, and I love what God has done in the creation of this world. He has put so much beauty in this world that didn't have to be there. Why did, you know, why do we have to have beautiful waterfalls? All we needed was water. And yet God put beautiful waterfalls in them. You know, he's beautiful uh, storms and everything. I love looking at storms, you know, as long as I'm inside. <laughs> uh, they're, they're wonderful to look at. But then you think about all the things God put in for the beauty that we can't even see. We're just discovering that God has images and decorations in the ultraviolet frequency and other, other frequencies that we can't see without aid, and we're looking at, we're now taking pictures of things in all these different types of light, and we're seeing that God put beauty everywhere. Why? Just so man could discover it in, in the last, last days? <laughs> it has to be what it is. You know, and he put beauty in places that we cannot see until recently. You know, because he knew the beginning from the end and knew there would become a time when man needed to see these things. And then we have people wanting to tell us that all this stuff happened by accident. All that beauty that we can't see with our naked eye can't happen by accident. All these things that are so well designed just accidentally all came together. Well, the biggest problem is I don't understand how life accidentally starts because science tells us it doesn't spontaneously generate unless you're an evolutionist. And then they had to do it at least once. <laughs> Even though science says it can't happen, it had to have happened once if you're an evolutionist. And an evolutionist accuse us of, being, uh, of living by faith, unjustified faith, and everything they do is based upon unjustified faith. 
And this is the interesting thing. God is out there wanting to show himself. You know, and he does things to show off <laughs> and draw our attention to him. And here he's saying, just ask. Ask and I'll give it to you. Then he goes, for the idols have spoken vanity and the diviners have seen a lie and have told the false dreams. They comfort in vain. Therefore, they went their way as a flock. They were troubled because there was no shepherd. So now he's saying, ask of me, not of idols. <laughs> Remember, Zechariah is preaching to a people and, and speaking to a people who were very much into idols. They're following the Astoras. They're following Baal. They're following all these different, different idols. And he says, you want something? Ask me. Don't go to the idols. Number one, the idols can't answer you. <laughs> uh, and he says, and the diviners have seen a lie. So the, the false prophets have either seen a lie or just are making things up as they go. And we're not going to say that all of them have just making things up because many times they are influenced by the demonic world because that is where they're at. The demonic world is something we have to take serious. They get possessed, they speak, they get filled with lies from, the, from the, that world. And many of them are so bound up into this. And when you open yourself up to the demonic world, you're asking for trouble. These people who go to soothsayers and, and seek the power of, you know, usually starting with white magic and then moving into black magic, they're all opening themselves up to the demonic world and the power that comes with that process. Now, the power comes with lots of strings that they don't know and they don't understand, like being taken over uh, to the place where, as we saw when Jesus was, these people were demonically possessed and they had no control of their own life because they were so possessed. And this still happens today. All right. Now, most people do not want to admit that it happens today, but it's still people are still being demon possessed. They're still having problems with what's going on in their life. We want to be careful about this. As Christians, we don't want to even entertain listening to demons. And we should not be participating in anything that puts us in that position, such as horoscopes and, and going to see some palm reader or fortune tellers and all these different things that are out there. Uh, we don't want to be getting into meditation outside of the way God says. God says to meditate, and when he says to meditate, he says to muse over and to dwell upon the word of God. If you go to Eastern mysticism and everything that most people say when they say meditate, they say empty your mind and become a blank slate. Well, an empty mind is a wonderful place for demonic activity. This is why God tells us to keep our mind full of him. It is very important for us to keep our minds focused on God. Now, the, thing, the problem that we have is here in America, we tend to think that we're too scientific to, be, to believe in demon possession. This demonic world is still out there. People are still being possessed. If we can be filled by the Holy Spirit, they can be filled with the demonic presence. Because they don't have the Holy Spirit. Because they don't have the Holy Spirit. As a Christian, you cannot be filled with the whole, cannot have a demon in you because the Holy Spirit cannot indwell you and a demon indwell you. You are protected by that. Now, that does not mean that the demon can't be sitting on your shoulder and, and speaking into your ear an awful lot and you would, could be listening. But 
you're not going to be, as a Christian, you will not be possessed by the demon because you're already filled by the Holy Spirit, which is good for us. <laughs> so he says, your diviners have seen a lie they have, and they have told false dreams. So they're, you know, they are ones that are lying to people. And unfortunately, there are churches that have false pastors and false prophets that speak lies and deceit. Now, our job as a Christian, and I've said this so many times, is I want to have a church full of Bereans, people who look, search out the scriptures. Paul told the Bereans, you, are well, you do well because you search out the scriptures to prove what I'm saying. I want everybody to prove what I say. You know, go back and say, you know, does this match up to the word of God? Because the day you just accept a teacher because they've always been right or they've always been a good teacher and you quit searching out the scriptures to prove it, all, they, cannot, they can get off just as easy as anybody else. They could stop studying. They could, they could probably just inadvertently, you know, most of these cults did not start with somebody saying, I think I'm going to start a new religion. You know, it's just somebody mishandling the scriptures and slowly bringing people away from God's word. And this is very important. We stay in the scriptures. We don't get tricked by false shepherds. And then God says, you know, they were troubled because there was no shepherd. This is very important. We all need somebody to look up to as a, as a shepherd. Ultimately, Jesus is the ultimate shepherd. But we need people to help teach us. Now, there comes a point where you don't need a teacher as much in, as you used to in the past, and you're able to teach. Now, that means that you become the shepherd for somebody else. All right, And that's an important step, too. Paul told Timothy, find men to teach men. All right. Our job is to take what we learn from our teacher and teach others. And I've said this for over and over again. We all need to be discipling somebody. So at least one person in our life needs to be discipled. Uh, for me, I have a whole church full of people that I'm working on discipling, certain, certain individuals within the church. For the longest period of time, my discipling was done to my children. Uh, my children are all grown up and they're on their own and they are now teaching their children for those who have children and they're reaching out to be able to help others because they are taking what they have been taught all their life and pouring out to others. I will now expand my, my discipleship to my grandchildren that are coming along and work on discipling them and helping their parents in, the, in that discipling. It is very important that we pour out what we learn. Coming to church all the time, going to Bible studies, and not pouring out will make us the Dead Sea. We'll have all kinds of knowledge, but not, it will just not be life to us because ultimately the best way to learn something is to teach it. If you really want to say that I know something and you can't teach it, you probably don't know it very well. You know a lot of facts, you know a lot of information, but if you can't express that to other people, then you're really not really able to do it that well. Uh, I, can, I can do any work on a car with a book. I could never teach somebody to do anything on a car because it's not my specialty, but I know people that are really good with cars and they know cars really well, and I kind of like working with them. They'll, they'll actually teach me something 
about how to do it and make it easy for me. And I've shared this, you know, I can, I can take the book, I can do anything on a car and I'll get it done in about three or four times as long as it should have taken. After I lose a couple bolts and springs and, and I have to go back to the store 28 times to, <laughs> to buy all the stuff that I lost uh, or broke. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm now making enough money that I don't like to work on my own car. I pay somebody to work on my car. Uh, but, you know, this is where we, we take and we, we receive all this information. It has to go out. We have to be discipling people. And it doesn't need to be somebody younger than you or not. It can be anybody that comes into your life. And as I've said many times, no matter where you are in Christ, no matter where you are in your Bible knowledge, you know more than somebody else. By coming to Bible studies, you know more than somebody else and you have something to be able to pour into a life. And just always be aware that when God puts somebody in your life, be willing to share and let them, let them know what you, what you know. Our testimony is so beautiful because if you give your testimony about what God has done for you, who can argue with you? It's your testimony. They may not believe you, but it is still your testimony. You know that it happened. When Jesus Christ came into your life and you felt the lightness of, of the burden of sin come off of you because he lifted it off and he gave you freedom from various sins, you know that that's what happened and you can say, no, I know. I know what happened. When I got saved, I know that God changed me. It became very obvious that you know, there are people looking at me because he took away a bad temper. Not that I never got upset from that point on, but he took away the bad temper because I always was in fights, always after people. And God took that away. And ever since, he's been taking all kinds of other sins and problems away. But I've said many times, when God comes into you, there should be at least one big thing that changed in your life. Might have been a sin taken out of your life. It might have been the weight of sin taken off of, your, off of you. It might be all of a sudden I understand the Bible when I didn't before. I have a desire to come to church. There should be something that was a big change in your life. And even beyond that, if you were talked to your family, did they know that something's different? They may not believe that it's God. They may not understand that it's God. But they look at you and say, you're different. You have a little more patience. You have a little more love. You have a little more caring. Whatever it might be that it is that you're displaying, they'll see that you are a new creation. And that's what God promises us. We are a new creation in Christ when we get saved. So he says, they were troubled because there was no shepherds. Now, the shepherds were supposed to be the Levites. The Levites and the prophets were their shepherds. Mine anger was kindled against the shepherds. I will punish the goats. For the Lord of hosts hath visited his flock, the house of Judah, and hath made him as his goodly horse in the battle. So God says, you are troubled because you have no shepherd. Now that does not excuse the people. You know, the fact that you don't have a shepherd does not give you an excuse to disobey God. But the shepherd is to help you out. Now the shepherd, if the shepherd doesn't do his job, and James tells us he's worthy of double punishment. And this is a serious thing. If you're a teacher and a, and a shepherd, you have to be willing to say, God, I'm ready to take the double punishment. Now he says there's double honor due to them as well, but 
because there's double honor, there's also double punishment. If they don't do their job, they're going to be answerable to God for not doing their job, and they will be answerable to the, to the, for not feeding the sheep. And this is going to be a big deal for many, many pastors, especially these guys who want to be pastors who aren't even Christians and don't believe God's word and don't trust them. They, they are taking punishment, of, heaping punishment upon themselves that they don't even understand. And God says, my anger is against the shepherds. Those that are supposed to be shepherds and aren't, he says, my anger is going to fall on them. And he will punish the goats, those who are not being fed, you know, not fed and not seeking to be fed. All right. Uh, and this is something that he says, for the God has, of host has, the Lord of hosts has visited the flocks of the house of Judah and have made them as his goodly horse in battle. Goodly means majestic, powerful horse. All right. So God says he has made his people majestic. Yeah. And this is the beautiful thing. When God steps into our life, when we get saved, the very first thing God does when we get saved is he declares us perfect. And then he makes us a new creation in Christ. And then he starts sanctifying us. And sanctification is that long process between getting saved and getting glorified, <laughs> the day I die, <laughs> of being made more like him. But the beauty of it is God said I'm perfect right from the moment I got saved. Yeah. And this is something we have to understand. We always look at ourselves in the process and say, well, I'm not perfect, God. You can't, you can't say I'm perfect. And God says, well, I'm God. I'm saying you're perfect. Besides the fact that he already is in the end days when, when we are glorified. And he says, Our, you, know, you may not think you are, but I see you as, I see you, as you will be. This is the beauty of God. And this is what makes things difficult when people read the, the New Testament and they get into salvation because there'll be, there'll be all these verses about how we're perfect and, and how we're totally righteous and we're, and we're in Christ and all these things. And people then come up with this idea, well, once you're saved, you, you, can't, you can live a perfect life and, and won't sin. Because they look at all those verses that say we're perfect. And they don't realize that there's... And then they don't know what to do with all the verses that say to be sanctified. Because they forget that salvation comes in three distinct parts. And they'll take the glorification and the, and the justification verses and forget all about the sanctification verses and then wonder why they sin. Because they'll go, well, God, you said I'm perfect. You say I'm perfect. You say I'm perfect. And God says, yes, judicially you're perfect. I have declared you perfect. You will be perfect when I glorify you, but I'm going to work with you for for all the time in between those two events. And this is the beauty that when we fully understand salvation, it helps us out. Salvation is really simple. God, I'm a sinner. I need Jesus. <laughs> I'm saved. So simple that any child can do it. So simple most adults won't do it. <laughs> because it's too simple in their mind. And, but... You can also be studying salvation for your entire life and still not fully understand everything there is to know about salvation. Because it is so much bigger than anything we can comprehend because now we look at 
how Jesus died, why he died, what he did, the three parts of it. I mean, there's, there's a huge amount of this. There's an entire, I remember seeing a set of books on salvation that was, I think it was 10 or, 10 or 15 volumes just on salvation. All right? Uh, it's something real simple a child can understand, and yet it is so deep you can study it the rest of your life and never fully understand everything there is to know about it other than the most important thing. Jesus came into my life and I'm saved. <laughs> End of story. I'm going to heaven. <laughs> and if that's all you ever understand about salvation, it's great. Just as we talked about grace on Sunday evening, grace is such a beautiful thing. God gives us everything we don't deserve. And as we said on the acronym, Christ riches at Christ's expense. That's the simplistic answer of grace, but you know that answer alone is enough to keep you marveling for the rest of your life. And then the more you get to understand grace, the more it becomes a marvelous, marvelous thing beyond that. So we start with the simple and just believe the simple and then God shows us more and more and more of who he is and what he wants us to understand. To the point where even when you start to think you understand it, you don't understand it. And this is the beauty of anything that God does. He is infinitely greater than we are. So when we think we understand salvation, God says, well, let me show you another part of the salvation. Let me show you another part. You think you understand my grace? Let me show you another part of my grace. You think you understand my mercy? Let me show you another part of my mercy. You think you understand my love? Let me show you another part of my love. He is infinitely greater than we are. And this is one of the things that we have to understand about him. He says, I have, I have made Judah majestic. Not they have done it. They're trying to live in sin. They're following idols. <laughs> and God says, I am the one that will raise them up. Out of him came forth, came forth the corner. Out of him the nail. Out of him the battle bow. Out of him every oppressor together. Here we're talking about Jesus. Out of Judah. Okay, remember, the tribe of Judah is the tribe that Jesus comes from. It's the king's tribe. The kingly tribe. And it says, out of him comes the corner, or literally the cornerstone, all right, which is Jesus. He identifies himself as the cornerstone, the stone that was rejected, the cornerstone. Out of him, and out of him, the nail. And this is literally a tent stake. It's what holds the tent stable in the, wind, in the windstorm. So it is what stabilizes the tent. If you've ever gone camping and you forget to put the tent stakes in on your tent, your tent will, if the wind comes up, you lose your tent, all right? Especially with the new modern pop-up tents that are all enclosed and, and you think you're all okay and the next thing you know, your tent's, tent's rolling uh, down, down the roadway because it got blown away. Uh, I went camping with a bunch of people who didn't know what they were doing. I told them to, to put the tent stakes in and I didn't check. Uh, and the teenagers didn't do what they were supposed to do and my tent was still there and theirs was down, the, down by the lake. I go, you better go get your tent and get it staked in like I told you to do. Uh, so Jesus is the stake in our life. He nails us to a foundation because he is the foundation. He is the nails. And he puts us firmly on a foundation as the cornerstone, as the tent uh, pegs, however you want to. He's going through down a whole list of whatever you want to describe to him. He is the foundation. He is the strength of our life when we trust him. 
and he, he's the battle bow, and out of him every oppressor altogether, or literally overseer, rather than oppressor, overseer is there too. So we look at this, and God says, I'm overseeing your life, I'm your, your stability, I'm your, your strength, I'm the cornerstone. You know, he's making a whole list of things. He goes, I am the one that gives you life. And this is the beautiful thing. Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Why? Because when we are born in, in the flesh, we are literally born dead. We have a life. We have biological life. We have a body and soul, but our spirit is dead because we are born in sin and we're born dead spiritually. And then Jesus said, you must be born again. You must have that spiritual life to be born. To, to, and then if you remember, when you got saved, do you remember that life that comes into you and all of a sudden it is different? Everything about life is different. At least that was for me. And it's most everybody else that I've talked to that got saved and know they got saved. They know something happened. And this is the beauty of it. If you don't know that something happened, then you've got to talk to God and say, God, do I really know you? When I got saved, I know that I got saved. There's not a question that I got saved. And every day since, God has shown to me that I got saved. Now, does Satan come along and try to attack every once in a while when I'm not living quite close enough to God? And, you know, you're not, you're not really truly saved. And go, oh, yes, I am. God said I am. <laughs> Now, God proved it to me over and over again. I know that I am saved no matter what he says. And this is very important for us because he gives us life. And this is something that's very important for us to understand. He gives us what is Zoe life, that life eternal that comes along with being saved. And it is eternal life. God isn't an Indian giver. He's, we are saved by grace, so he's not going to come along and say, well, no, you've just been so bad, I can't, I, you're not saved anymore. And if you don't believe it, just take the word. We have eternal life. It's not life until God says otherwise. <laughs> it's eternal. And when God gives it to us, it's ours. He is not an Indian giver. He is not, he is not a liar. So... We look at this, and this is a scary thought, because I know many good Christians who believe that you can lose your salvation. I feel sorry for them, because they get bound up in rules so bad, because they're so worried that if they don't live just right, they're not going to go to heaven. It is a free gift, and God's never taken his free gift back. Jesus paid a great price for us while we were yet sinners. And the biggest thing about this is how much of your sin was, was in the future when Jesus died? You know, for us at this day and age, all of it. All of my sin was in the, in the future when Jesus died. So there's nothing that he didn't die for before I even became a Christian. Yeah. And this is the beauty that we have to remember. It is a gift. But it's just hard to grasp a lot of that. Even... Um, even wash out our sins, the sins that we haven't done yet, not Yeah. The sins you haven't done yet, they're in the future, he, he already cleansed. Because he already knew them. This is why we have to understand that God is outside of time. He knows the beginning from the end. 
and is at all places in his omnipresence, he is already at the end and knows it and has forgiven us of those sins that we haven't even committed yet because he knows we're going to commit them. To thinking like on that situation, like I'll be struggling on something or doing something and then after I finally, you know, get done, I say, like, I already knew that I was going to do it. Why did he make me struggle? To he does it. I mean, no, I mean, he, he allows the struggle. But most of this allowing us to struggle is so that we grow more dependent upon him in the first place. Because if I didn't struggle, if I didn't struggle, then I would take him for granted and be weak in the long run. Because if you want to make a plant get very weak, don't water well, <laughs> that would kill it. <laughs> I mean to make it weak. Uh, when they built the first biospheres, they would have no wind, no, no things, and the trees were beginning so weak that eventually they would break. And the botanist told them, you need wind. You have to give them wind. You have to give them something to make them strong. And it's the same thing for, for us as human beings. And I've said this many times. If I want to exercise, so I pick up this little pen and I start curling this pen. I could probably curl this pen from now to the next month and never gain a muscle in my body. Uh, well, maybe a muscle, or maybe one a little bit of muscle. It, it's it's got a, it's got a little bit of weight in it. And, it, and I'm moving, so there'd be a little benefit to it. But if I really want to build a muscle, I need to put a barbell in that hand that has some weight on it. You're not going to win arm wrestling contest. Yes, well, I won't build up a muscle that'll win the win the, win the arm wrestling with this pen. I'd have to go get a 10 or 20, 30 pound weight and start roll, you know, uh, curling it. Okay, so we understand even in our body, we need that stress to make us grow. God understands spiritually that we need some form of stress and trials to make us grow. We can make really bad decisions <laughs> and cause a lot of stress that we don't deserve either. All right, because those are the consequences of our decisions. But you know what? Romans 8.28 still applies in those cases. All, for all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So even when I make bad decisions, God will use them to do something good in, in my life or around me or for somebody. In his, in his world. But it's in his, you know, and I've said this, you know, I remember a time when I had gout attack for six months and I'm going, God, I don't understand why I'm in so much pain for six months. About a year later, somebody had come up to me and they said that, you know, you encouraged me so much while you served God, and even though you were in obvious pain. I'm going, okay, God, it wasn't for my good, it was for their good. Now, does that mean I got nothing out of it? I probably got rewards in heaven for, for being faithful. Uh, but a lot of it was for them. It encouraged them. So, you know, this is the biggest thing I make a point on that verse is most Christians want to add one word to that verse that's not there. They want to add all things work together for my good, and that is not in the verse. <laughs> okay? All things work together for good. I think it actually says for the good. Uh, but, you know, for good. Not necessarily my good, but for good in the kingdom of God. And this is something we have to change our perspective. As a Christian, my perspective isn't what is best or good for me. It is what is best for the kingdom. What is God doing and what is best for him? You know, because when we look at the martyrs, 
You know, we look at it and go, God, how can that? That wasn't good for them. And God says, well, it was good for the kingdom. People got saved because they died. And we're still talking about them today. Many of these martyrs we still talk about today. Why? Because they stood out. They honored God. And God says, that was the good. They're still being talked about. They're still being, people got saved by, by what they went through. When we're faithful in trials, people look at us and say, I don't understand how you guys can be serving a God that acts that way. And you're still smiling. You're still, you're still following him. And that impresses people. People are looking for something that's worth dying for. You know, and we as, as Christians have something that's worth dying for. When we're under great temptation and trial, you know, one of the greatest things will be to, to say, God, I'm willing to give my life because you are true. Because what is giving my life anyway? As Paul said, to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. So if I get killed, I just step into God's presence. What a terrible thought. <laughs> terrible idea. Go ahead, you know, I'm going to die. Yeah. And this is why, for, for me and my view of, point of, of death for a Christian, is it's a celebration. In Psalms, God says um, that he takes joy in the death of his saints because they get to come home. And that's hard for us to understand as human beings because from our human perspective, the worst thing that happens to us is to die. But from a Christian spiritual perspective, the greatest thing that can happen to me is I die. And I get to go to the Father. <laughs> I get to go home. This is not my home. I get to go home if I die. The greatest blessing for us as a Christian is to die. Now, that doesn't mean we go out and try to commit suicide. You know, no, we're not going to do that. But, you know, when the time is up, the greatest thing. Paul said, I'm torn between the, betwixt the two. To stay here and teach you which is better for you or to go home. I understand that. I really just want to go home. I do. I want to go home. But as long as I can minister to people and help disciple people, then I want God to leave me here as long as I need to be here to help people and to minister. As soon as it's done, I want God to take me home. Now, if that means he wants me to live here for two, three hundred years, you know, ministering to people and I've got the strength to minister, I don't care. If he puts me through misery to minister to people, I don't care. You know, and this is something we've seen all through all through history, people have gone to prison because of Christianity. And in prison, they ministered to people. And that, that is where, if I end up in prison because of my beliefs, I'm going to minister. Going to prison is not going to keep me from being a pastor. It'll just change who my audience is. <laughs> uh, so let's continue. Judah... Um, I will strengthen the house of Judah. I will save the house of Joseph, and I will bring them again to the place that uh, uh, to place them, for I have mercy upon them, and they shall be as initial, and, and they shall be as though I had not cast them off. For I am the Lord their God, and will hear them. This is such a beautiful thing. He goes, I will strengthen the house of Judah. 
again, primarily the tribe of Judah, but the house of Judah in this particular case is all the southern kingdom. Uh, well, get into it. We can claim most of the promises for them, but we want to be careful on that because there's a theory called the replacement theology where the church replaces Israel, and that's not true. But God will strengthen us as Christians as well. So we want to walk a fine line between all of this, but he does, because we are now adopted into his family. We are engrafted into the root of the olive tree, and the olive tree represents Israel. And being engrafted into the root of the olive tree makes us an olive tree. It's the only plant that when engrafted, and you engraft it into the root, it changes the branch to be what it is. Any other tree, if you engraft, if you have a pear tree and you engraft an apple branch into it, that apple branch remains an apple branch and will produce apples. We had a, we had a tree in one of our houses, in one of the places we rented that had three different trees planted in, I think it was a pear tree as a matter of fact, and it had an apple and something else engrafted into it. It, it, would put, it had the most strange fruit on it. Uh, now all the apples tasted a little bit like pear because they were being fed by a pear, pear roots, but it still produced apples. The olive tree changes the branch to be an olive branch. And when God says we are engrafted into the olive tree, it is that we are changed to be part of Israel. So yes, in one sense, anything promised to Israel applies to God's people, Christians. But we don't replace them. <laughs> uh, but I'm just, yeah. So we have a, we have a kind of a two-way street. We can we can claim their promises, but need to be careful how we do that. <laughs> uh, and it says, "I will save the house of Joseph." And this is the one that goes to the nor- northern kingdom, Manasseh and Ephraim, and are the ones in the northern kingdom. And they get they they says that God will bring them back as well. He goes, for I have mercy on them. The beautiful thing when you are God's child is God's mercy, as well as his grace. All right? Now, we've talked about this many times. Mercy and grace are used by many Christians interchangeably, and they're exact opposite words. Grace is getting what I don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what I deserve. So all the punishment I deserve, God doesn't pour out on me is the mercy he gives me. All the benefits he gives me because of Christ is his grace. And it's beautiful. He says, I'm going to bring Judah and the northern kingdom back because I have mercy. Uh, and it shall be as though I had not cast them off, for I am their God and will hear them. So God says, I'm going to bring them back only because I'm God. What a beautiful thing. The, the return of Israel was not dependent on them, was not dependent on their mighty getting together and, and raising up an army and returning home. When they left the first time and went to Babylon and then they went into the Medo-Persian Empire, then God raised up Cyrus and said, send them back. Go back. And Cyrus even paid for the building of the temple. 
He gave them the gifts. He gave them all the old stuff. He gave them tax credits. He gave them money out of the treasury to build the second temple. In 48, Israel was returned back to the nation, to be a nation. Why? Not by any great power that they had, but by a declaration signed by the allies. Put them back into their home, where they will now, from what we can tell in the Bible, stay until the end of the millennial kingdom when God destroys everything. All because God's mercy. Not because they deserve it, because if you look at the Jewish people today, most of them aren't even following God in the Jewish ways, much less seeking after him, seeking after the Messiah. Many in, in Israel are atheists. But it's kind of interesting because they're atheists that will tell you that God gave them their land. But they don't believe, so I guess they're more agnostic. But they will tell, they will tell you, they're, they, many of them will tell you they're an atheist. But they're in, God's, in the land that God gave them. Everybody, well, what do, we, what do we say? You know, something bad happens is an act of God. You know, uh, why did God let this? I don't believe in God. God has nothing to do with me. But why did God let this happen to me? You know, this is the schizophrenia that the world deals with. Or they say, could you pray for me when they don't believe in God? Yeah, or they, well, at least they say they don't believe him. Yeah. Um, it says, I will bring them in, for I have not cast them off. Even when God sent his people in captivity, he says, I have not forgotten you. You're not, you're not without care. If we as Christians turn away from God and walk away from him, he'll let us wallow in the mud pit. All that we want to wallow in the mud pit, you know, he'll let us go. And he's probably up there shaking his head. You go, you're not supposed to be that dirty. You're not supposed to be, you know, and he's waiting to hear. Are you ready to call? He has not cast us off. He has not thrown us away because we failed. If he did, we'd be in trouble. I know I'd be in trouble <laughs> because I failed too often. And I am glad that it's all his mercy. And he says, I am not going to cast you. I'm not casting you off. And all through the scriptures, he says, where is your, you know, told Israel, where is your bill of divorcement? You have, you've played the whore. You've played the harlot. You have abandoned me, but I have not divorced you. I have not thrown you aside. God's mercy is so wonderful. And then add to that his grace. He kept giving them back their land. He kept giving them things that they did not deserve. And he's given Israel back their land. And they did nothing to really deserve it. And they're not worshiping him now to deserve it. And he's still doing miraculous things to keep their land from them. And it's only going to get more miraculous as time goes on. <laughs> and he says, this is what I'm going to do. Your land is yours and it is, it is now yours. And uh, verse 11, uh, 7, and they of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man and their hearts shall re rejoice as though wine, yea, their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. And this is a very interesting one. They, they, shall, they shall rejoice as through wine. And you know, we've talked about this in a previous chapter somewhere. I don't remember where, but we've talked about this. Wine is not a great thing. It has a long, bad side effects. <laughs> but 
why does why do people get into drinking and everything? Because initial effect of wine makes you feel joyful, loosened up for the most part. <laughs> it's only when you start getting drunk and, and making it a, a bad problem that you really had the big problems. And God says, you're going to be rejoicing. What happened to the apostles and, the, and then when they got bold and, and outgoing, when the Holy Spirit came on them, they were, you guys are a bunch of drunks. You know, and Peter goes, no, we're not, we're not drunk as you suppose. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. Do we get that freedom when the Holy Spirit comes into us that we will say, I have all the effects of alcohol without all the bad side of it. I have the joy, I have the freedom, my tongue is loosened up, I can say things, and it's going to be good things in that case because it's the Holy Spirit. <laughs> but he says, it'll be this way with them. Their children will see it, and they will rejoice. One of the great things for us is that our children need to see how God has changed us and the joy that we have in that. Children are looking at us. You know, one of the reasons that many teenagers and children are leaving the church in droves today is because their parents don't live out Christianity in their home. And they'll say, do as I say, don't do as I do. Now, go to church. I'm not going to church. I'm just staying home. I'm too tired after work, you know, but you, you have to go to church. You know, uh, it's funny when you go to somebody's house, you know, and to visit them and you go, you know, they have a Bible question and they have to go dig out their Bible. They have no clue where it's at. But I have a Bible question from when I read it last, you know, three weeks ago. You know, are we living out Christ in front of people? You know, we need to be able to talk about God. We need to be able to raise up his voice. You know, one of the greatest things I'm looking forward to is the day when our church gets together and people are sharing what God has shown them all week long or, or the last time they opened their Bible. I just got to tell you what God has shown me. Just got to show you, what, you know, talk to you. This is, you know, or just have questions. You know, I just have to, you know, maybe you can ask me this question for me. I love people with Bible questions. Uh, when I was teaching a Bible study, uh, Sunday school one time, at the end of the month, we always had question and answer period with them. And if they came with questions, you know, I was happy. You know, even if they were trying to find a question only to try to stump me, that was okay. You know what? They were still in the Bible. They were still in the Bible learning something even without me. And I used to love it when people go, I've got a really hard question for you. And I'd get their question and answer it for them. Now, the funny thing is most of the questions weren't that hard. Most of the questions weren't things I hadn't heard before dozens of times. But they thought it was hard, which means that they were in their Bible looking. They were studying. They were trying to find information. This is the beauty of we get in, we ask questions, seek answers, share with things. And a lot of people go, well, I'm so new in the Bible. I don't know if what I'm learning is good. Some of the greatest insights I have ever heard from about the Bible have come from brand new Christians who didn't know anything about the Bible. They see things differently. They understand things differently. And sometimes I've had to correct a couple of them, but you know, sometimes I've had some really you know, wow, you know, wild moments. I go, I never thought about it that way. That's amazing. You know, never think that anything that God has shown you is too small to share with somebody. If God has shown it to you, it's valuable because the Holy Spirit is ultimately our teacher, 
Our ultimate teacher is the Holy Spirit, and he will show you what you need to know. And he will guide you through the word of God and help you. Verse 8 says, I will hiss for them and gather them, for I have redeemed them, and they shall increase as they have increased. Now, I don't know what the newer versions say, but hiss is more of a whistle. He will whistle for people, and that's how the shepherds called their, called their sheep in the, in, the, uh, in the Middle East. They'll whistle and call them by name. And God says, I have called you, I have whistled for you and gathered them. I have redeemed them. God has bought his people, Israel. He has also bought us. Through the death of Jesus Christ, he has bought and paid for us. He paid for sin. He, t- he bought us out of the slave market of sin, out of prison, into freedom. Throughout the scriptures, it tells us that in our sin, we are prisoners. Prisoners. The world that without Christ cannot help do anything but sin. That is what they are. That is who they are. That is what they do. And I've said this over and over. I am never surprised when a sinner sins. Which means I'm also not surprised when a Christian sins because Christians are redeemed sinners. (laughs) I'm a little more disappointed when a Christian sins, but I'm not surprised because we are sinners. Now, if we expect people to be good and perfect, then we're shocked when somebody sins. We're shocked when somebody lies to me. I'm shocked when somebody steals from me. I'm disappointed when a Christian does it, but I'm still not surprised because this is what we are. We're going to do evil unless we are submitted to Christ and living according to the Spirit. Now, some people do better than others at living in the Spirit, but it's not a shock when somebody sins because that's who we are. We are sinners. We are redeemed sinners. (laughs) And he says, I'm going to increase you. And then I love this verse, I will sow them among the people and they shall remember me in far countries and they shall live with their children and turn again. This is kind of an interesting thing. God has done this on multiple occasions. He sent his people Israel into captivity of Assyria. He sent them into captivity with Babylon. They were scattered all over the known world. What did they do when they were there? They lived like Jews. Everybody thought they were crazy. Matter of fact, most of the Jewish existence, people have thought that they were a very lazy people because they took, a, they, they took a vacation every week in a world that works seven days a week. And they looked at these Jewish people as, you guys are nuts. You are the laziest people that we know because you take, you take a day off every, every week. You know, now we're getting to the other extreme. You know, uh, we've got countries in, in, uh, in Europe you know, that are giving people three-day weekends. You know, and you know, month, a month or more of, of vacation time. You know, but it used to be that the one day off a week was, was crazy. And the Jews lived that out. They sowed it. Their children maintained it. Israel has been a nation, the Jewish people have been a nation that has stayed Jewish no matter where they are for the most part. Now, they don't practice it 100%, but they stay Jewish and understand why they do what they do and they teach their kids. Even the, even the non-Orthodox Jewish child will understand what Passover is about. 
They understand what Hanukkah is about. They understand what Purim's about. Now, if those don't mean anything to you, we'll talk about them some other day. <laughs> uh, but those are all beautiful holidays, and they have great power and even and significance. But they knew what they were, so that when they came back, they were still Jews. In 1948, when they came back to Israel, they still knew to take Saturday off. They knew to take, you know, uh, to practice the holidays and know what they meant, you know, and because they were Jews. And God says, they will remember and they will turn back. And he says, I, in the verse 10, I will bring them again out of the land of Egypt and I will gather them out of, out of Assyria and I will bring them into Gilead and Lebanon in a place that, and, and place shall not be found for them. He says, I will gather them back. And even in this day and age, when they came back from, from the Babylonian captivity, the people in that land made it hard for them to come back. They gave them a hard time about it. What happened in 1948 when they came back to their land? The people gave them a hard time. And God says, I am bringing them back. I've given them their land. And God, even to this day, there were many Jews that just desired to go back to Israel. Not because they've ever lived there, you know, but it's just a desire in their heart from God. And God is calling his people back home. And even more so as we see anti-Semitism on the rise again, I think there's going to be more and more Jews that are going to want to go back to Israel. Because as dangerous as it is with neighbors all around them wanting them dead, it's still their home. It's a place where they can be Jews. And so there, more and more of them are wanting to go back home and just be a place where they belong. And, you know, it's interesting there. And he shall pass through the sea of, with affliction and shall smite the waves of the sea and all the de deeps of the river shall dry up and the pride of Assyria shall be brought down and a scepter of Egypt depart. And I will strengthen them in, in the Lord and they shall walk up and down in his name, saith the Lord. Israel has gone through trials and tribulations and persecutions and many people have tried to, to, to wipe them off the face of the earth. Uh, you had the, uh, Mordecai trying to do it. You've had Hitler trying to do it. You've had so many people trying to wipe them off the face of the earth. All of it is Satan trying to do it. Satan wants to destroy Israel because if he can destroy Israel, he can prove that God doesn't know the future because Israel is the whole centerpiece of everything to, from the tribulation, from the moment the rapture happens onward, it's all about Israel, all of it. So Satan is trying desperately to get rid of Israel. Every Jew, if he could wipe out every Jew, then he could prove that God do, doesn't know the future. It'll never happen. God won't allow it. He hasn't allowed it in any time past. He won't allow it in the future. And he says right here in verse 12, I will strengthen them in the Lord. He is the one that gives them. And then it says, they will walk up and down or traverse back and forth in his name, saith the Lord. God puts them in place. He keeps them there. And the idea of walking back and forth shows that there's a peace and a protection. You don't go walking in a battlefield if you're smart. <laughs> uh, you, you only 
walk in a place where it's safe and just wander and this traversing up and down is kind of just meandering you you know you, you you're going to be and this is the freedom that we have in Christ in Christ I have peace I get to be in a Psalm 23 you know where God is putting me in pastures he's given me my meals amongst my enemies yea though I walk through the shadow of the valley of death I will fear no evil all these things that God says I am in control you are at peace because I'm in charge. <laughs> and this is the beauty of it. I can be at peace no matter what is going on in my life, no matter how hard things are going in my life, no matter what's going on. I can be at peace because God is still in control. You know, whether you like or dislike that last election, God is still in control. It doesn't matter. You know, we like the direction we're going and we don't like the direction. God is still in control. And God was not surprised by anything. And he's never surprised in anything that happens in my life, period. God will never say, I didn't know that was coming. It's not in his vocabulary because he knows everything. So when anything happens to us, we rest secure that God has a plan. And if I can learn to rest in his plan, life is so easy to get through. Does it mean that I'm going to like his plan? Not necessarily. You know, but the one thing I will know is whatever his plan is, it is for good. And as long as I recognize that it's for good, then I should like his plan. And that gets us into a very interesting place. You know, how do I like something that I don't like? It comes down to trust. If I truly trust that God has a plan and that he hasn't lost control and he's still sovereign, I can learn to like whatever he sends my way. I'm in pain. God, thank you. Show me how it's going to be used and I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll bear it. Paul said he thanked God for the light, affliction in, light afflictions in comparison to glory. And Paul's light afflictions were not what most people would call light. Being thrown into prison, being beat, being shipwrecked, being hungry, not being liked, being attacked everywhere he goes. And he said, these are light. Light, not in actual fleshly, but light in comparison to what was coming in heaven. He understood what was future. We need to understand no matter what I go through in this life is nothing compared to what eternity is going to be hold in store for me. And as long as I'm looking at eternity, I'm looking at home, it doesn't matter what happens to me on my trip, which started here and we, we have to get home, but <laughs> whatever happens during my trip doesn't matter because home is where I'm looking for. You know, and if you think about it, if you have a terrible vacation, everything in your vacation goes wrong, you're looking forward to coming home. We need to really understand, and the problem is for most of us, we don't understand that this world is not our home. Our focus is on this world, not, not home. And if we really start focusing on home and saying, God, I am just looking forward. I'm looking forward to getting past all of this. If we were to go through what would be, even if it was pure hell on, wor on this world, it's still nothing compared to eternity with God at a mansion. 
can't imagine what our mansion, our, our suite of rooms in heaven is going to look like. But if you, you know, if you want just a kind of a small picture, imagine any movie, anything about royalty in their bedrooms. You know, uh, I read, read a story one time where this person was escorted into his fine hotel room. And he walked into, and he spent the entire time in the lobby and go, man, this room just isn't all that great. And somebody goes, well, why didn't you never went past these doors? And they opened them up and the entire suite, he spent the entire time in the lobby on a couch. You know, because he didn't know what was out there. Most of us as Christians are doing that. We're living in the lobby of God's blessings and not in the complete blessing that he has for us because we never open the door to the rooms that he's given us, the peace that he gives us. And so it's a lot of it learning to trust God. And we're going to end there. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We ask you to help us to learn to trust you in all that we do. Help us to learn to trust you more as, as we go through our experience. And guide and lead us. Give us opportunities to share you with others this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.